Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged this society based on science and technology, in which nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people in the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host. And today we're going to talk about personalized medicine. And we have a co-host. Uh, today's is Dr. Carla Claudio. She's a postdoctoral researcher here at the University of Florida in the area of genomic medicine. So welcome to the podcast, Carla. Thank you so much. Yeah, so Carla and I met a few weeks ago at a um, workshop, or actually it was a seminar in mm -hmm. professional development, where I was talking about trust and trust building and strategic trust building as a part of science communication. And uh, you decided that maybe you would like to dip your toe in the podcast world. So tell me a little bit about your research. Yes, I'm working in Tourette syndrome. Basically, the goal of my research is to identify the genetic underpinnings of the disease. Um, because even when we know that it has a strong genetic component, we do not know the cost yet. And what do you, uh, how far along are you in your research? Uh, right now, I have been up to a year, more, a little bit more than a year, working with Dr. Carol Matthews here at University of Florida. And basically, I'm working with uh, genomic data as well as uh, clinical data of people with Tourette syndrome and chronic tics. So genomic data, you're mostly using computational tools? Yes. And then tying these in with clinical data to look for associations? Exactly. Okay. And, and so what's your long-term plan? Uh, my long-term plan is to use this, my knowledge and skills uh, in genomic medicine uh, or in pharmacogenomics because that's my, my uh, preparation while I was doing my PhD um, for the advance of precision medicine. I have not, uh, I have not established yet uh, you know, a clear goal, but basically that's what I would like to do. Okay, well, very good. Well, why don't you introduce today's guest? Yeah, of course. I am very happy to have here uh, Dr. Julie Johnson. She is Dean and Distinguished Professor at the College of Pharmacy at the University of Florida. And she's a leader in the field of precision medicine, uh, the topic that we are going to be covering today. Thank you so much, Dr. Johnson. For yeah, being here. thanks for having me. Well, I'll start out because I'm probably the most ignorant of the group in this area. Tell me a little bit about what is precision medicine and why should we even worry about it? 
Yeah, so precision medicine is an approach that really focuses on the individual. And so uh, in many ways in medicine, and particularly in our treatment approaches in medicine, we tend to uh, lump people together based on their diagnosis. So um, if you have hypertension, for example, or high blood pressure, we have a group of drugs and then we sort of pick by trial and error. Or if you have... Um, you know, some other diseases, if you have a heart attack, for example, we tend to treat everybody pretty much in the same way. And precision medicine really sort of takes that one step further and says, you know, people have unique characteristics that may make one treatment approach better for them than the other. And um, so really trying to find what are those unique characteristics in an individual that would allow us to more precisely, so precision medicine, more precisely um, come up with a treatment strategy. So one of the things that make people truly unique is their genetics. And so um, a part of uh, precision medicine is using genetic information, but it could be many other things. Um, it could have, eventually we think it will have to do um, with things like where they live, what the environment that they live in is like, um, things that affect their um, sort of healthy behaviors. Do they have neighborhood? Uh, uh, do they have sidewalks in their neighborhood? Do they have streetlights which makes which make it safe to walk? Do they have um, uh, fresh vegetables and fruits because they have you know a large grocery store? So so that's where we think this is headed. But right now, a lot of it is really focused on using genetics. Uh, to predict what might really be the best approach to treat this person. Great. Um, I would like to know, how did you start doing research in the field of precision medicine? Yeah, so I really got interested, um, and it's kind of a joke because my mom sometimes asks me, um, like, haven't I answered the question that I started on 30 plus years ago? Because <laughs> it sort of feels like the same question in some way, um, which is a little bit true, although I think I've made a lot of progress in 30 years. Um, but my questions really started um, with trying to understand for um, medicines that we use to treat high blood pressure, specifically beta blockers, were well known to cause different responses in people who were white versus black. And we knew that was true, but we didn't understand why. And so um, in my very first project as a brand new assistant professor, I was really interested in trying to understand that. That eventually, about a decade later, later led me into genetics um, and, and really um, then over the last 20 years, a really strong focus in pharmacogenetics, which is trying to understand how our genetics influence response to drugs. It's really interesting that you mentioned, you know, the, the difference there. But do you see segmentation that, that comes out around sensitivity to specific therapies or potentially, uh, you know, utility of a given mm -hmm. course of drugs in treating a given disease? Yeah, we absolutely do. And, and um, you know, it used to be that we had sort of more crude measures. So, you know, somebody's skin color. Um, but we now are much better able to really sort of uh, understand uh, at a more precise level what is underpinning that. And it may be dietary issues, um, but in a lot of cases, it's genetics that's that's really influencing that difference. There are also differences that we didn't necessarily 
um, appreciate where we we know that for for medications drugs um, that some people respond and some people don't and and we're now able to understand in many cases what uh, is underneath that so sometimes that drug response um, or lack of drug response or sometimes that serious adverse effect um, that in some cases is life-threatening uh, you know now we have the ability to, to detect uh, in certain scenarios that that's due to genetics. And so we can really then use that information to target therapy better. Um, also, what excites you the most about precision medicine? This is a very interesting uh, area. Everyone asks me when I tell them that I investigate in genetics, everyone asks me like, oh, that's so cool, you know, because there are so many access today to genetic testing. But I would like to know from your perspective, uh, what is the thing that you think is more exciting about this field? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what is exciting about it is really the potential to make people's lives better. Um, and I, I think the other thing that is really great about it is it's easy for people to understand. You don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be a healthcare professional. Um, if you just ask the question, have you or anybody you know ever taken a, a drug that you felt like didn't work? Or have you ever taken a drug that has a side effect? And nobody has is, is able to answer that question and say no, because basically everybody has had or knows somebody who's had that experience. Um, you know, and so then you say in some cases, and hopefully more cases in the future, we can maybe predict that um, before we give you the, the drug, right? So we'll avoid that drug if we think it's not going to work or we think it's going to cause a side effect and we'll do something different. So um, it's exciting because, because we already have seen that it can make the lives of people better. Um, but it also is, is just something that's easy for people to understand. Sometimes, you know, science and technology advances are harder for people to kind of grasp. But, but I think it's really easy for people in this case to personalize it. Um, and so it makes it easier for them. And when you talk about people uh, about when you talk about genetics to people, uh, particularly these days that we have so much access to genomic data and we have a concern about uh, privacy information, I would like to know from uh, your perspective what is the common attitudes among patients when they are educated about pharmacogenomics. Yeah, so so it's interesting. I think that um, again, you know, sometimes we don't we don't give the public enough credit, um, and we think that they're going to be afraid of genetics. They're going to be afraid of having genetic testing. Um, what we see is that it takes very little explanation about pharmacogenetics to make them comfortable with that. Um, that doesn't mean that they're comfortable with all genetic testing, right? So if you take the same individual and talk about genetic testing for Alzheimer's, which is very scary for people, which we don't have good treatment options. A lot of people don't, you know, even if they, you can say to them, we might be able to predict that, they don't want to know, right? Because I can't change anything about that. I can't do anything. It, it feel, that feels hopeless to me, right? So they may not want that information, but when you explain pharmacogenetics, um, we find that very few people are hesitant about um, having that testing done just because it's genetic. So, um, so I think it is important to be able to explain to people, you know, what the you know, what the risks and what the benefits are when it comes to genetics. And it's not sort of perfectly equal across the board. Um, and it's easy for people to understand that as well. Well, it's interesting that you say that because 
uh, as a plant biologist, I can tell you that when you mess with genetics of plants or crops or food, people freak out. Mm -hmm. Yet, when you're talking about medicine, they seem to almost seem like it's more hopeful. Mm -hmm. It's really mm -hmm. interesting. Nobody freaks out about genetically engineered um, uh, insulin. You know, that comes right. from, and and something I've studied for a long time is how people respond to these different things. And I think the idea of precision medicine and the idea of using genomic associations to uh, to hone treatments is actually something people look at super favorably. Right. But what are some of the uh, limitations when we start talking about this? Is it really just a question of we don't have enough data from enough people to really be able to make the best associations? Yeah, so there, this it's not perfect, right? And so helping people understand that um, this this helps us sort of narrow in, but it doesn't it doesn't mean it's a perfect predictor. Um, I, I mean, I think that's really important. But in terms of your question about, you know, can we can we use this across the board? The answer is no. We don't have uh, enough data um, to use this for every drug. We probably never will be able to use this. It's probably not useful for every drug. Probably not every drug um, has genetic underpinnings for its response. And so, um, you know, figuring out though. And, and adding to the list of drugs where this really can be useful is going to require really larger and larger data sets so that we can sort of um, home in on those pieces because we think for a lot of drugs, so if I go back to my sort of original story um, about high blood pressure, you know, that one's been a tougher, a tougher nut to crack, if you will, because we think it's probably lots of genes adding small pieces to the story uh, as opposed to one gene telling a lot of the story. And so, and that's harder because you need um, a lot more data. And we also have to make sure that we have data across populations. So, um, that that include data of people who you know descended from Europe, Africa, Asia, um, the Americas, and um, and so especially for people who aren't of European ancestry, in many cases we don't have enough data, and that's you know that's a challenge and a problem because um, we have to make. We have to not assume that the data we derive in people of European ancestry will work in people um, who come from um, other continents. And um, we also have to just continue to work hard to get data in those populations so we can use the data well in them as well. Yeah, maybe a good way to boil it down for listeners is it's a lot like 23andMe and Ancestry and all these things mm -hmm. where they tell you information that's counter to what you know but may not necessarily be true because the markers that you're looking at are based upon only the sample that they collected, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so you're, you, only can, you only have so much of a reference. And, and maybe it even ties in with that. You know, where does the data come from from this? Is it from things like Ancestry and 23andMe and people who voluntarily give their information? There, I mean, there, you know, those are very large data sets. And so there are some interesting opportunities to um, extend our knowledge uh, about drugs. And they do ask some questions. So when they ask questions of people who sign up for 23andMe um, or Ancestry, probably more in 23andMe, they ask more health-related questions. Um, you know, that is, a, that is a, a space where we can learn more. But we also think that large research databases, so in the United States, we um, have a project ongoing called, called All of Us, which 
the goal is to collect data on at least a million people and link that to their health records so that we really can do sort of some of those deep dives in other countries. So, for example, in the United Kingdom, they have a very large um, database that includes genetic information linked to um, health records. And so, you know, it's really sort of pulling those resources together, um, we need an African biobank, right? Because we need to be able to ask those same questions in people of African ancestry. And so um, I think those sources will, you know, will come, those data will come from many different sources, but um, we have to continue to, to make sure that the diversity of the population is represented in those databases. And that's not always true. Also, I was I can testify with um, Dr. Johnson uh, just said uh, because I, while I was doing my PhD, I work with data from Puerto Ricans that Puerto Ricans are an mixed population, and it was interesting to do research in them because you can find variants that were very common in Europeans, but also variants that are common in Africans, and it's really hard to predict what kind of genetic variation that mixed populations will have. Therefore, how do you apply precision medicine to a mixed population? That's something that needs more research. And we'll drill down on all of that in just a moment. We'll take a break here. We're speaking with Dr. Julie Johnson. She's the Dean and Distinguished Professor in the College of Pharmacy here at the University of Florida, and our co-host, Carla Claudio, who's a, a Dr. Claudio is a postdoctoral fellow here in genomic medicine. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everybody. It's me, Kevin. And it's uh, time to talk about crisis and opportunity, how these things always travel together. Now, I'll say that my heart is a little bit heavy, and I hope you understand. This is one of the last episodes of the Talking Biotech podcast, at least as we know it. I started this effort almost five years ago, and I learned a lot along the way, and I'm so proud of the archive of outstanding guests in the really great spectrum of science that we've explored together. Thank you for all the great feedback and all the wonderful emails, all the kind tweets and things that you've said. It's been fantastic. Unfortunately, my employers demanded that I stop this podcast. I've been told very clearly that it's not good for the institution, that my communication efforts negatively affect the university. These decisions are based on the fervent anti-GMO world and also a few marginal people in science communication that do not appreciate what I do. They've targeted me because of the visibility that my media garners. My therapist calls it malignant envy. It's, it's one or two people, you know who they are, just review who my critics are. And I could throw them under the bus here, but I won't. The podcast is done 100% on my own time and budget. I buy the microphones, I buy the bandwidth, I buy everything. All of the disclaimers in the world are not enough to create a comfortable distance between my passions to communicate science and my role as a university research scientist. So what to do? Um, I can't let the franchise die. I'm searching for a new host. I need somebody else to be the voice of this podcast. We have four to 6,000 downloads a week. Think about that. That's huge. We can even monetize this and be able to pay somebody for their efforts. It just can't be me. I'll arrange the interviews, I'll produce the episodes, I'll run the website, and I'll do it all at my own personal expense. 
I've filled out the forms and already asked the university for permission to do this on my own time as outside work. And we'll see what happens there. But, but without being the voice. Right now, I can't defy orders. I love my lab and students. I love a paycheck and health insurance. <laughs> it's pretty good stuff. And I have to play by the rules, even if it's counter to everything I believe in. Maybe someday I'll understand the wisdom. The folks ending these outreach efforts, they're not the enemy. They're the same victims as we are, the, the same victims of bad people that seek to remove scientific voices from an important dialogue. It's an intransigent minority that screams louder than the consensus. And that's what motivates universities to take action, even if it means silencing good science and good scientists. I forgive them. I hope for a day when universities again can become the beacons of scientific dissemination rather than the pawns of political expedience, brand preservation, and massaging media that does not cross the desires of wealthy donors. The real enemies are hunger, preventable disease, threats to farming, denial of science, ignorance everywhere, and all of the other issues we address here every single week. And I'll say it again, the opinions of the... <laughs> The podcast, are, uh, the host and the guests are not necessarily those of the University of Florida, its faculty or students, and it's produced entirely independently of the University of Florida. Maybe I could do this with a funny voice and a pseudonym. That never works out. As always, thank you again for listening, and help me make this important vehicle even more effective in its next incarnation. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're here with Dr. Julie Johnson, who's a dean and distinguished professor at the University of Florida College of Pharmacy, and Dr. Carla Claudio, who is a postdoctoral researcher and someone who is here to host her first podcast. <laughs> and she's doing a great job. So uh, going back to the idea of precision medicine, and as a leader in this area and, and co-author of so many guidelines, how do you foresee the implementation of pre precision medicine in the near future? Yeah, so the implementation, which we have uh, research funding from the National Institutes of Health to really help to sort out, um, has some challenges. And some of those challenges aren't really scientific challenges, but just really practical challenges. So, um, you know, how do we get the physician or the other healthcare provider to order the test? Um, how do we help them interpret the test? Because they may not really have a strong background uh, in genetics. And, and how do we, um, you know, really facilitate those processes all, all along the way. We've worked really closely with our Department of Pathology to develop those genetic tests to offer in that clinical setting. Um, and, and so probably, you know, probably the, I would say the biggest challenge is on that interpretation end. So, you know, physicians not necessarily being comfortable um, with the, the idea of a genetic test in the setting of drug therapy and then helping them to be comfortable with the decisions that they would make after they get that genetic test. And so, you know, one of the tools that we're using are really electronic tools. So the electronic health record allows us to create um, what we call clinical decision support. So it supports the physician in their clinical decision making. And so what we do is if we have a genetic test result where we would recommend doing something that's not sort of the normal path, and we have an order for that specific drug where we might say, mm, that's not a great idea because of the genetics, then we're able to create an alert in the electronic health record um, that the physician is using in the care of that patient that says, wait, stop, 
you know, think about doing something differently. And, um, and so building those tools also can be challenging, but we think that that really, we don't think it's realistic that, you know, every practicing physician and other healthcare pres- um, prescriber is going to know all, have all this knowledge. So we have to really hand that to them in a very, if you will, digestible way um, that provides them clear guidance so they know what to do with that information. Well, it's really interesting. And do you think that, that the, the clinic of the future will be a physician or you know a physician's assistant who really is teamed with a statistician and someone who's already looked at your data you know and and it, it, like I'm looking forward in the future it seems like this is, should be happening now that before you even see a physician you should have that set of information yeah we do think that eventually and you know when people say how soon is that eventually um, I think within 20 years, but it's hard for me to guess whether it's eight or 18. Um, but I'm pretty confident that within 20 years, it will be very common to have a, a lot of genetic information, the whole genome probably, on, um, on, a, on a person. And that will be part of their medical record. Um, and I'm not sure that they'll be sort of sitting in the clinic, but there will be you know, bioinformatics people, sort of, you know, fancy statisticians, if you will, um, really dissecting the information about that patient to make recommendations, um, very specific recommendations to the healthcare providers about, you know, how to use that genetic information in the context of the care of that patient. Did you sequence your genome? I haven't sequenced my whole genome. Um, I'm not willing to spend that much money yet, but I definitely have all my pharmacogenetic information. (laughs) Also, you mentioned about uh, that healthcare providers might be uncomfortable about genetic testing. It makes me think about how do you foresee the medical and pharmaceutical education under the precision medicine paradigm? Yeah, so I think we're already seeing uh, a shift Uh, Certainly in pharmacy education, there's an expectation by our accrediting body that every pharmacy student is exposed to pharmacogenetics, that that's part of the curriculum. Um, And so I think, you know, we're beginning to see that in all of the health professions, making sure that students are savvy about genetics, um, genomics, other sort of omics technologies and how those might um, influence care decisions in the future. I think you know, that's becoming part of the educational process. The problem or the challenge, if you will, is that you have people who graduated 50 years ago and everything in in between out there practicing. And so figuring out how to close that knowledge gap um, is probably the bigger challenge. It's it's not as much the current students as it is, you know, the people who are in practice um, and need to get, they don't have to become experts, but they do need to develop some comfort level um, with that information. And we do have to have practicing experts. You know, so as Claudia knows, we have, um, uh, as Carla knows, we have a lot of um, uh, clinical pharmacists on our faculty who really are in those clinical front lines helping other healthcare providers really interpret and know how to use this pharmacogenetic information in the practice setting. I have another question. Do you think that other institutions are preparing their uh, pharmacy students so well in the area of pharmacogenomics as UF is doing right now? Yeah, so we're probably, (laughs) I I don't think there's any question that we have more specialists in pharmacogenetics than most, probably all colleges of pharmacy. So, so it is really a focus of expertise for us. 
Um, but I will say that every college is, is looking at how they can bring that expertise in um, to their college because I think everybody understands that it is the future and they have to be educating their students uh, in a, to be really savvy in this space. Yeah, you've convinced me to change my major, but I think it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> Just maybe. Um, so, but what about students who do wish to go into this as a career? Uh, what kind of training is necessary to be able to begin to pursue this at a graduate level? What do you need to do maybe as an undergraduate mm -hmm. or even you know, earlier? What skills are really important to be able to pursue what looks like the next frontier in medicine? Yeah, so I think I think there's really two paths and, you know, Carla is on one path, which is really sort of more that research and data focused path. So really being able to add to the knowledge base so that we can use more and more genetic information in clinical practice. And the other really is a practice driven path. Um, you know, so whether it's pharmacists, physicians, nurses, genetic counselors, um, really having maybe not quite as much um, depth of knowledge in that true data analysis side, but clearly understanding and being able to interpret the output of the analysis of a data um, uh, that, that Carla might generate and understanding how to use that in the clinical setting. And so, you know, I think whichever, whichever path somebody might take, um, you know, it, it really is combining, you know, biology, genetics, um, and data analysis. And so getting really solid skills and knowledge in all three of those areas. Um, and, you know, starting that in high school is not a bad idea. Um, you know, students don't often take a statistics course in high school, but it's something that they should think about taking, mm -hmm. for example. Getting comfortable analyzing data um, is going to be really important for the future, whether it's in precision medicine or lots of other areas. Um, data, you know, data is the future, data are the future, mm -hmm. and um, being savvy about data analysis is, I think, going to be an important skill. Can you point to some of the real successes of this approach? I mean, we've talked a lot about, a lot about what it is and it's and more about, you know, it's, it, but without its actual application. Is there any place where it just has really resolved, you know, our understanding of the disease and its treatment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a great example is in cancer, um, and maybe more specifically or where we have seen the most dramatic changes are in lung cancer. And so, um, so for cancer therapies, there's now a recognition that, you know, the approach of the past, which was to try to kill cancer cells, which happened to be growing a little more quickly than regular cells, um, was the way we tried to treat cancer. The problem was that when you kill cancer cells, you also kill regular cells. And so those have a lot of toxicities and in a lot of cases um, really haven't been that effective. What we know now is that there are, for many cancers, there are what are called genetic drivers. So that cancer is really driven by a genetic mutation. And if we can target a drug to that, um, then we can really shut off that cancer. And so um, there have been really a large number of drugs for cancer approved in the last decade that really are targeted at these genetic drivers of cancer. So those are, in, and we will only use those, those drugs in people who have that genetic mutation. Those drugs do not work in people who don't have that genetic mutation. So that's really, uh, I think, at 
um, at one end of the spectrum and, and really exciting. And again, you know, coming to lung cancer, lung cancer is a completely different disease now than it was 10 years ago in terms of our treatment options. And it's really because of these genetically targeted therapies. On the other end is, is a lot of the area that we work in, in drugs that maybe have been a around for a while that we know sometimes don't work. Um, but now we have the genetic information to understand. And, and one of the really classic examples there is, is a drug um, that its, its brand name is Plavix. So we know that um, for Plavix, which is a drug that prevents platelets from clumping together and forming blood clots, which lead to heart attacks and strokes and death, frankly. Um, and we know that now that about 30% of individuals who are from African or European ancestry and up to 70, um, 50 to 70% of people from uh, Asia have a genetic variation that doesn't allow them to activate that medicine and therefore it can't work effectively. And we have shown um, here at the University of Florida that if people have that genetic variation and they get those um, those uh, they still get Plavix, they're at a two to two and a half fold greater risk of having a heart attack, stroke, or death as if they use a different therapy. Um, and so it's just an example where in that case, we can target, we're not targeting um, the drug, uh, we're targeting to not use the drug in that case based on the genetic information. And so a little bit different than the cancer drugs, um, but but really, again, a, a great example of where when we use that information, uh, and we can really personalize that therapy and, and push them towards a, a medication that's really going to help them. If you had to get out your crystal ball, can we even begin to guess at what is on the next edge of precision medicine? Hmm. Yeah, so I, I think the next edge is when we have really this widespread information, genetic information on everybody and it's part of their um, medical record or their health record. Um, and, and, you know, and then the other leading edge is having good enough data to be able to use that in a really comprehensive way. Um, whether it's using it to, you know, predict the right medicine for them, which is the focus in our research group, or whether it's used to predict their risk for certain diseases and then help you know, hopefully those are diseases that may have some preventive strategies associated with them. So really having more targeted approaches to um, uh, prevention of disease, or once somebody has a disease, using information to predict what their prognosis. Um, and, and that's really what we're doing in cancer right now, but the hope is that we can do that with lots of diseases. I actually would like to make a bold prediction on these things and that, you know, I wear a watch on my wrist that measures my heart rate, tells me about my sleeping patterns, tells me about, I, I kind of see that we'll be in an era where we'll be able to have almost transplantable telemetry that may mm -hmm. monitor things like blood pressure. Yeah. You know, it'll monitor everything and report this to some central database and then compare that against our genetic data and develop associations in populations. And I think we'll see some really interesting patterns that will fall out. And I think this is coming sooner than later. Yeah. No, I, 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 I think that absolutely will come um, where, 
you're right. The thing on your wrist is going to monitor a lot more than your steps. And maybe it's monitoring your heart rate right now. Um, it will monitor glucose. It will monitor all kinds of things. And, um, and we will be able to use that uh, in a way to both take better care of people. They'll have more knowledge about themselves. But at the same time, we continue to feed into research databases so that we can expand our knowledge. It's all super exciting. So, you know, thank you, Dr. Johnson, for joining us today and Carla. Uh, but um, if people want to know more about you and what mm -hmm. you do, is there a place that they could find more information, maybe Twitter or anything like that? The College of Pharmacies um, Twitter is at UF Pharmacy. And, um, and we also have a, a Facebook page and, and lots of information on our website, which is copcop.ufl.edu and um, within that web page we have a precision medicine page so um, lots of ways to find us um, on the internet and social media. Well thank you very much for joining us and thank you for listening to another week of the Talking Biotech podcast. A lot of changes coming in 2020 some which are not necessarily so exciting but I really need you to fill out the reviews now so the more reviews the better um, talk about what you like, what you don't like, and let me know too. Um, we really want to do this differently in the next year, and we, we could use your guidance. So please fill out those reviews on iTunes. Thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra. 
the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.